Let me ask you about Iran, Senator. The broader region, of course. You said this week that the only way to keep the war from escalating is to hold Iran accountable, part yes. of what you're talking about now, <laughs> and that it might mean bombing their oil refineries. Yeah. Have you had any discussions with the Biden administration about this? A, a bit. Uh, I want to applaud President Biden for his strong statement in support of Israel. I just got off the phone to the Israelis. Uh, their goal is to destroy Hamas in the south and try to save as many innocent Palestinians as possible to prevent escalation north from Hezbollah. Here's my message. If Hezbollah, which is a proxy of Iran, launches a massive attack on Israel, I will consider that a threat to the, um, to, to the state of Israel existential in nature. I will introduce a resolution in the United States Senate to allow military action by the United States in conjunction with Israel to knock Iran out of the oil business. Iran, if you escalate this war, we're coming for you. Are you effectively poised to declare war on Iran? That's very strong language. I, I am poised to use military force to destroy the source of funding for Hamas and Hezbollah. The idea that Iran read about this operation in the paper or on television is laughable. 93% of Hezbollah and Hamas's money comes from Iran. They're the source of the problem. They're the great evil. So if Hezbollah escalates against Israel, it will be because Iran told them to. Then, Iran, you're in the crosshairs of the United States and Israel. They want you to die in their world war, folks. Welcome back to More War Mondays on the Rob Manus Show here at uh, live at the Red Voice Media Network. And we have our X-Spaces simulcast audience up and up. Kat, real quick sound check. Copy you, Colonel. Outstanding. Well, obviously, the world is clearly on the brink of World War III, as we've been warning would happen for over a year now. But why are we here? Let's review. Because we actively have taken decisions that brought us here. Entering a proxy war with Russia without a U.S. or NATO industrial base to back it up and without a vital national interest at stake. Appeasing Iran, the largest state supporter of terrorism in the world for decades. Refusing to adequately focus on the Chinese Communist Party's building military threat to the West. All of these actions, or worse, inactions, have weakened our deterrent capability, what Donald Trump so effectively used to keep the peace and others before him have, but that has now emboldened the bad actors such as Islamic Nazis in the Middle East that are Iran's proxy militias. Well, my guest today is author and influencer Gavin Wax. Mr. Wax is the president of the New York Young Republicans, and I'm on the board of advisors there. I like to be transparent on these. The most effective young Republican group in the nation and only one that fully supports America First policies at every single turn. Well, Gavin, welcome to The Rob Mana Show, sir. Well, it's great to be here, Colonel. I'm looking forward to our discussion and uh, thank you for the high praise. Well, let, let's dive right into it with, uh, with uh, Lindsey Graham, Mr. Warmonger there. You know, look, Gavin, I'm a uh, 32 and a half year military officer. I've been to the Navy War College. I actually was able to graduate. You know, I've never been a great student, but I I can graduate. Uh, I've worked in the Cold War. My dad was in the Cold War. We we brought down the Soviet Union through one thing. It's called peace through strength. You know, uh, without uh, uh, 
well, in latter years, after the Vietnam debacle, without, for the most part, creating any major regional wars or multiple major regional wars, other than the small wars that we created. Uh, so when I see and hear this stuff, when we've got a major war going on in Eastern Europe that we are pushing, we refuse to let Ukraine negotiate at all and come to the peace tables, uh, and we've maxed out our industrial base and our logistics system and our personnel, because believe me, there's 300,000 Americans in Europe that weren't there a year ago. Trust me, guard units are in play, reserve units are being activated, especially in the logistics tail of strategic airlift, tactical airlift, ships, trucks, those kinds of things. So when I hear Lindsey Graham, uh, who shouldn't be talking about this in this way, threaten the Iranians, which are not an existential threat to us, but could spark off the rest of World War III and get the Chinese involved, get the Turks involved on against our side, a NATO ally who's actually against Israel. All I hear from him is, he's looking at you, man. I want you to go die for my goal, not your country, but my goal. What are your thoughts on that? I wanted to get somebody like you on this show to take, some, take a shot at laying out where your generation may be coming from, where you're coming from specifically, but, uh, but, but I wanna spend this next hour talking about those kinds of things and everything, and I wanna end it at the, at the very end. We're gonna end it in the last segment with your thoughts on future U.S. national security strategy and military strategy, because it's important that people like me, who are comfortable with things like deterrent options and moving forces around, maybe too comfortable, hear from people like you who have put some thought into this in today's context. So what do you think about well, Lindsey, man? Well, Colonel, I think you and I share the same sentiment on the uh, senator from South Carolina. He's never had, never seen a war he didn't want to uh, wage. He's never seen a country he didn't want to bomb. I mean, his entire foreign policy philosophy really just boils down to bomb them, bomb them again, and then bomb them more. I mean, there's no nuance here. There's no understanding of any sort of macro geopolitical strategy. There's certainly no self-evaluation or evaluating what is the actual strategic interest of the United States, of our national security, and 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 factors that we should be uh, waging, you know, uh, uh, war based on. Uh, he just sort of emulates the dying neoconservative, uh, you know, orthodoxy of years past. It's their last, you know, dying breath that they're just saying, you know, we need to bomb Iran. We need to continue to throw gasoline on the fire that is the Middle East. And what we're seeing today, that you touched on, uh, there's a lot of hubris in the West. There's a lot of hubris. Uh, from the geopolitical uh, thinkers in the Western world. And uh, that hubris is leading us to become extremely overextended, well beyond where we should be in any, you know, sensible uh, state of affairs. Uh, you know, we're overstretched in terms of our, you know, production, our ability to replenish our depleting stocks of munitions and armaments and weapon systems that are being destroyed by the Russians in eastern Ukraine. Uh, we're failing to meet recruitment goals, largely due to the politicization of our of our institutions, particularly the military, which is probably one of the last dominoes to fall uh, in this sort of institutional rot that's been taken over the country. Uh, we're 
overstretched just in terms of the actual physical, you know, deployments where we have our 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 men and women uh, under arms, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in the Middle East. I mean, we can't keep track of where they're all deployed. And you even alluded to it, the fact that you have these guard units, you have the reserve units. I mean, they're really pushing our military capabilities to the limit. And we're not the same country we were 30 years ago, 40 years ago. We're not the same country we were economically, demographically, politically, militarily. Uh, it's not Pax Americana anymore, sadly. And we can, you know, we can shed a tear for that, uh, or we can also just be realistic and understand that the world uh, is fast, uh, is fastly approaching a multipolar world order. We're not in a unipolar world order. It's not just you know, the State Department calling the shots anymore. There's a lot of different regional actors. There's a lot of different global powers uh, that are beginning to rival the United States militarily uh, and economically. And we have to understand that. And we have to operate within that framework. And we have to also understand that our foreign policy objectives need to be rooted in America first. They need to be rooted in protecting our national interests, protecting our security above all, and also understanding that these alliances and these treaty obligations, that they should all be a two-way street, that we should not be you know, setting ourselves up to be entangled in all these different treaty obligations with a variety of countries that serve no strategic interest to the United States. And instead, we see a political class in DC uh, that are hell-bent on war, uh, you know, without understanding what the actual goals are, what we're trying to achieve, what victory looks like. They just want to, you know, engage, engage, engage. Uh, and there's no depth to it beyond that. And, uh, you know, we we won the Cold War and we've we had uh, peace under uh, President Trump's four year term because of the uh, the philosophy that you outlined, peace through strength. Uh, that is the sensible policy. Uh, that would guide the United States to an era of peace and prosperity. Instead, now uh, we're governing through, you know, try to bomb them. If it doesn't work, threaten them. If that doesn't work, sanction them. And if that doesn't work, bomb them again. It's just repeating the same, uh, the same policy failures over and over and over again. We need negotiations. I fully agree with you. We need to allow uh, Ukraine to go to the negotiating table. There is not going to be a military victory on the ground in Ukraine. I mean, people have been talking about this, all these different offenses and all the different weapon systems and all the different you know aid packages we've sent to them. It hasn't moved the needle on the front line at all. Ukraine is being gutted uh, as a nation state. They've, they've lost a generation of young men uh, fighting an unwinnable war without any clear objectives. Uh, you know, they're engaged in like World War One style trench warfare. The front lines are pretty much solidified and Russia is just biding their time for, you know, their next counter punch or whenever they're going to make the next big move. Uh, but there's really nothing that NATO and the collective West has been able to achieve fundamentally on the ground in Ukraine besides wasting more money, more Ukrainian lives and putting the position uh, of our NATO allies uh, in a more tenuous situation uh, than they started out with at the beginning of this conflict. And obviously, we can get into that conflict and its origins, you know, how far back it goes and all the dynamics involved. But now you look at the Middle East, uh, which is, you know, uh, you know, it's never exactly been a stable region, but uh, the current day, it's uh, it's certainly, uh, you know, the, the epitome of, of how uh, badly things have gone in the Middle East. And uh, we're seeing an entire breakdown of the sort of peace and stability that Trump was able to bring about through the Abraham Accords, we've seen it completely be destroyed overnight. And like you mentioned, it's it's very nuanced, it's very complicated. You know, the entire sort of axis that was being built to counter Iran with the Gulf states, uh, with the Arab states, that's falling apart. There's been a rapprochement yeah. there. Turkey is, you know, engaged in sort of a neo-Ottoman 
empire building that they're trying to, you know, remilitarize. You have conflicts yep. in the Caucasus, uh, Azerbaijan versus Armenia, and there's a lot of conflicting, you know, takes there. You know, Azerbaijan obviously is more opposed to Iran, but then Armenia was previously more aligned with Russia. So the whole world right now is a mess, and we need leaders that understand that, that are going to be serious, that are going to be sober about that, and are going to realize that we need to approach these things delicately, tactfully, and we can't always just resort to the Lindsey Graham strategy of bombing them, especially when you know a lot of our munitions are being depleted already. Uh, so it's a sad a state of affairs, Colonel. I'm a big uh, Teddy Roosevelt fan, the debate of walk softly carry a big stick. Let's get the Spaces audience involved. I know we've got some folks with mics over there uh, that uh, either have a comment or a question before we go to this first break, Gavin. Uh, we're unusual here. We're unique uh, in that we have a live audience over on Twitter Spaces or X Spaces. Go ahead, Kat. Who's got a mic over there? Oh, we have all kinds of people with mics. Nobody's raised their hand, of course, on the first go-round. But um, I'll, I'll ask Gavin a question. Um, What's his position on where where does he stand with like Israel? Like, do you feel like we should only offer um, diplomatic support, or are you in support of any type of boots on the ground at all? Just curious, what your take is. Listen, I, my my view is let the Israelis do what they need to do as a sovereign nation to protect their you know their their the integrity of their state, the lives of their citizens. That's the same that I would extend to any other state that would face the sort of serious and grievous attacks that Israel faced. Obviously, uh, I would like to call for, you know, the minimization of any sort of civilian casualties and the targeting of civilian infrastructure that goes for both sides. But this is war and it's it's going to be messy. The fog of war is certainly going to, you know, make things very hazy. We're seeing a whole second front open up online with the disinformation warfare, one side accusing the other of war crimes and vice versa. Israel needs to do what they need to do to defend themselves, defend them citizens, defend their citizens. I have a, you know, a philosophical belief against say foreign aid and American troops on the ground that goes just goes beyond Israel. It applies to most countries. Uh, so in this case, it would be no different. I don't want to see American troops on the ground. I think America should apply pressure to get out any dual citizens. And if that doesn't work, then obviously other options can be considered. It appears that Hamas is more willing, uh, because of the position they're in, obviously, to release uh, anyone holding dual citizenship. Um, I think more pressure needs to be applied, and I think we need to give the Israelis a carte blanche to do what they think uh, is best for their national security interests. At the end of the day, I think uh, what happened in Israel uh, is a major indictment of uh, you know the, the the this broader you know a Western uh, national security intelligence apparatus. I mean, it was a massive failure. I know no one wants to talk about it now because we're still grieving and and it's going into the conflict. But the fact that Hamas was able to pull this off uh, to such a degree speaks volumes about what's happening both in Washington and in Jerusalem. And I think we need to make sure uh, that we're much more guarded from these attacks in the future. And I think we've put ourselves in a position in the West where we've opened the floodgates to mass migration particularly in Europe. I mean, you could talk about the mass migration in the U.S. and all the, the issues that we face from that, but Europe has an, an additional layer to that. The vast majority of their uh, mass migration, their illegal immigration, uh, is Islamist in nature. I mean, they have imported hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions of military-aged young men uh, who have become radicalized, who have no economic prospects in Europe, who are not assimilating. And that's why you see the streets of every major European city it doesn't look any different from Gaza or Beirut. 
Uh, and I think this is a problem that the West has been engaged in, that we've been focusing on empire, we've been focusing on interventionism abroad, and we forgot to keep our own house in order. We left the doors open. We've uh, flooded our own countries. Our countries have been, you know, deindustrialized. They've been flooded uh, with millions of illegals. Uh, they've been spiritually broken. And uh, now we're not in a position to fight the wars that we may have been in a much better position to fight 50, 60, 70 years ago. Exactly. If only they'd listened to us over a year ago. You know, well, we got to take our first break. Gavin got to pay for this thing with commercials and everything. So, uh, Let's go ahead to our break, and uh, we'll talk about some hypersonic missiles that uh, are non-threats, according to Vladimir Putin, when we come back. Attention Americans, breaking news. Biden's dangerous plan for a digital dollar is underway. Don't be fooled. It won't benefit you. Take action now. The Federal Reserve phase deployment of FedNow began on July 1st, 2023. Be prepared. This may catch many off guard. Your hard-earned assets are in jeopardy. But there's a simple legal tax loophole to opt out of the digital dollar. Reach out to American Alternative Assets for a free wealth protection guide and discover how to safeguard your wealth with gold and silver IRAs against a failing dollar and volatile markets. Visit protectfrombiden.com. This invaluable guide provides precise steps to transfer your IRA or 401k into precious metals without any tax consequences. Be smart. Don't let Biden force you into using the government's new digital dollar. Visit protectfrombiden.com to get your free guide and get started. Again, that's protectfrombiden.com. Listen up, folks. You, you just heard the Bidenomics thing, the ad. Uh, this whole thing's not working. The U.S. dollar's losing value, and your hard-earned savings really are a risk. You can act now before it's too late with one straightforward, entirely legal tax loophole. Contact our friends over at American Alternative Assets for a free wealth protection guide. Learn how to safeguard your wealth from a failing dollar and volatile markets with gold and silver IRAs. Dial 833, the number 2 USA Gold. That's 833-287-2465. Visit protectfrombiden.com. Well, welcome back to the Rob Manus Show here on the Red Voice Media Network. And we're talking with uh, Gavin Wax, who's an author and the president of the New York Young Republicans Club, amongst many other things. But he's actually thought about what he's talking about today. That's why I, well, I wanted to get him on here as a guest. And Gavin, we're going to show a little clip here. And folks, I'll read it. Uh, I'm going to read the transcript as it comes across because it's in a different language. Go ahead and clip to Disco. They just moved two aviation strike groups into the Mediterranean Sea. I want to say, this is not a threat, what I'm going to say now, and what I will inform you about, I the Russian are starting on an ongoing basis in the neutral zone of the airspace Black Sea, and our plane, Big Three Point, armed with 
Они, как известно, over 1,000 kilometers at Mach 9 speed. And then it shows a chart uh, from Lexi folks. Uh, that is uh, right in the heart of the uh, Gerald R. Ford U.S. Aircraft Carrier Task Force. It's right in the heart of that range. And uh, the Kinzhal is a hypersonic missile launched off the MiG-31. It's uh, been used to some, uh, some pretty effective use in the Ukraine war. We've seen it. Uh, and it's not the only hypersonic uh, uh, jet-carried uh, missile that's available to our adversaries or uh, launched off of uh, off ships, too. Uh, you know, and I think that complicates uh, a lot of people look at the Israel thing, Gavin, and, and I do, too, you know, and reflect back to 1973 and the Yom Kippur War uh, then where the United States did what we're doing right now, which is helping them out with logistics. Uh, and uh, resupply and those kind of things. Uh, and uh, I'm not philosophically opposed to that because in this case, Israel is a declared vital national interest of the United States, not for religious reason, reasons, but for, for uh, foreign policy and, and uh, national security reasons where it's at, that, it, you know, that it's, one, it's the only Western-style democracy in that part of the world, et cetera. Uh, so, so I'm not totally opposed to that or moving stuff around to try to deter. But this time we have a major proxy war that we're fighting against that country. That was Vladimir Putin speaking there about his MiG-31s with hypersonic missiles that are doing patrols now at his request in the neutral area of the Black Sea, which puts that carrier battle group in the eastern Mediterranean right in the heart of those missiles. Uh, yes. That's what's different. That's very different. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm just going to say the, 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 the carrier group that we deployed, I mean, it's not having the intended effect. I mean, no one seems to really be deterred by it. Uh, certainly not Hamas, certainly not Hezbollah. I mean, Hezbollah has, you know, an army of 40,000 men. It has a massive uh, missile stockpile, rocket stockpile, you know, including a lot of, you know, quickly made, cheaply produced uh, inventory uh, of missiles that they could just start lobbying at our ships and, and cause a lot of damage. And we really don't have the means to really go after them uh, in a way that, you know, inspires sort of a deterrence. And then you add the Russians into the mix. They have their military base, their naval base at uh, on the Syrian coast in uh, Latakia, I believe. Uh, and it just adds to the entire conflict turning uh, from a, you know, a small localized regional conflict between Israel and Hamas and Gaza, which there have been numerous conflicts and operations over the years. This, 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 this conflict has been going on since 2005 when Israel first disengaged from the Gaza Strip. And it's been, you know, a two, three-year cycle every now and then, airstrikes, you know, some kind of a limited ground invasion. This time it looks like it's going to obviously be much bigger. But now, in addition to that, you add the entire regional dynamic at play. The Assad regime has, you know, really obviously cozied up to Russia. They were involved. Uh, Russia was heavily involved in maintaining uh, Assad's grip on power through the civil war. Assad has reasserted himself. Uh, you know, the ties now between Hezbollah uh, have only been improved. Uh, it appears that all these different groups, whether they're Shiite or Sunni, are willing to work together against their common enemy, Israel. There isn't nearly as much division along the religious lines as there were as there was in the past. Uh, you even see Russia is open to using their air base in Latakia for, for Iranian arms shipments to land because Israel was bombing some of the airfields in, in Aleppo and Damascus to prevent that. So this is becoming extremely dicey. 
uh, and our ships in in the, in the Eastern Med, I, I just don't think they're having the intended effect anymore. Because you know, if it, if the war spreads to say Hezbollah in the north with with a second front in Lebanon, you know, it's going to be brutal urban warfare. It's not going to be this conventional warfare. And Israel has plenty of munitions and planes and all the tech they can need to, to bomb them, but it didn't work in 2006. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily working right now in Gaza. I think ultimately th these wars are going to be won on the ground. They're going to be won uh, with with some kind of you know uh, occupation force, some sort of long-term force, whether it's in Gaza or South Lebanon, which existed until the early 2000s, late 90s. Uh, there was a security built in South Lebanon. Gaza was, you know, there was 10,000 settlers in Gaza that was under, you know, Israeli military uh, control. You know, a lot of people were opposed to the original disengagement back in 2005. I think there, those voices are now uh, becoming uh, more and more uh, credible by the day, because at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to deter this type of, you know, activity, this type of military engagement that Hamas engaged in with the strategy that Israel has developed over the last 10 years, which was, you know, a very tight border, the Iron Dome, which is a very expensive, you know, it, it costs a ton to shoot down one really cheap Hamas yeah. rocket. So they tried this strategy and it didn't work. They were infiltrated. There are tunnels all over the place. They were operating within Israel's borders for days uh, before they were captured. So the entire you know, status quo uh, in the eastern Mediterranean has been completely turned on its head. And Russia is now flexing. Uh, Russia is you know, clearly the dominant power in the Black Sea. It has a strong interest in the eastern Mediterranean. And those are fighting words from Vladimir Putin. Those are fighting words. And I don't know uh, if we are in a position uh, to escalate this further. And I think we're really on the verge of a major world war uh, unless we get serious leadership change in Washington with serious people who understand uh, that these things need to be evaluated. We need to take emotion out of the equation and we need to understand how to navigate this to avoid unnecessary bloodshed. Yeah, I think I think the the bottom line is a couple of facts. Israel has not requested U.S. military intervention with our forces, uh, uh, although it appreciates the deterrent uh, options that have been uh, uh, been put in place. And I think, uh, and that includes in the north too, with Hezbollah. Uh, and I believe that Israel's IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, is perfectly capable of handling any threat. Uh, as opposed to what Lindsey Graham said, that it would be existential. Well, it'll be a tougher war if they do that, uh, if Hezbollah comes in after Israel goes in on the ground and invades Gaza. And I think you're right. It's going to take an occupation force. Uh, but you know what? The, the Hamas Nazis, they, they, they stepped across a threshold that hasn't been stepped across in 75 years since the last Nazis that had any power uh, and military forces did it. Uh, against the Jewish people in large part, for the most part, you know, in the Holocaust and everything. Uh, it, so Israel, I think, is rightly so going to go in, and they, they should be calling for their un unconditional surrender to see if we can get them to surrender and not have to go through the bloodshed. Uh, but they're not going to do that because they're crazy. They're crazy people. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they don't need our help in the north. We shouldn't go in with combat force now as a blocking force, air you know, block air forces and those kind of things. We should do that, uh, and that's what I think the uses of the aircraft carrier battle group up there uh, is to uh, keep other bad actors from trying to sneak in by air. Iran, even Turkey, in Russia, Syria, any of those bad actors, or Egypt. Uh, could try to do something by air in the middle of all this, and that that will spark 
definitely a wider war which could trigger the Chinese getting in and then then all of a sudden we've got World War III. That's my take on it. You're sounds like you're pretty close to where it Yeah. I generally agree with everything you just said. I think, you know, I'll, I'll try to go through it point by point. There's certainly a faction online of online commentators that are trying to, you know, delegitimize Israel and their military capabilities, especially in the wake of these attacks. Israel is a very serious military power. It obviously suffered from an intelligence uh, failure, but that does not change the kinetic, you know, capabilities of the IDF. Uh, but I also agree with what you're saying, that if it were to open a second front in the North, this would be a very serious conflict. This would not be the same, you know, kind of limited, lower intensity conflict that we've seen in Gaza, you know, every in these two-year cycles, these two, three-year cycles that we've seen. It would be much more akin uh, to something like we saw in the Yom Kippur War, maybe less conventional, uh, but it would certainly put the strain on uh, the entire Israeli security apparatus. I'm not saying that Israel wouldn't be capable of winning. It certainly can. It's really going to come down to will and what they're allowed to do uh, vis-a-vis, you know, the international community or whatever you whatever you want to call that. Uh, but at the end of the day, they certainly have the ability and the means to do this. But it's not to say that they're not still in a very precarious situation. Uh, you know, the, the, the missiles, the rockets, the arsenals that Hezbollah has been stockpiling uh, are really going to be debilitating to a huge chunk of Israel. We're talking about a very small area very small land area. They don't have a ton of strategic depth uh, at all, really. So, you know, you saw what happened with Hamas, you know, how deep they were able to penetrate into very major Israeli cities, you know, Ashkelon, Ashdod. These are major Israeli cities that they were, you know, they had fighters in, you know, you add the northern front, you're going to see the same type of situation Haifa with the port there and all the rest. And then obviously Iran has already been, you know, they've been pounding the war drum. They're willing to start, you know, using their, uh, you know, missile arsenals. They're willing to get more engaged. I mean, obviously they've been playing this game by proxy for a long time through their militias that you said in the opening, through these other groups that they're affiliated with. But if this were to really start to, you know, develop in a much more a kinetic way and in a much more grander scale, you know, Iran jumping in, uh, Syria jumping in, uh, you know, all of Hezbollah being activated. I mean, this is going to be a uh, probably one of the biggest conflicts that Israel's faced since the, since the Yom Kippur War. And again, now it's also under this umbrella of a larger global, uh, you know, uh, you know, this larger global uh, in, in, this lack of stability in the world with with Russia now also playing a major part. Uh, in the maneuvers. And, um, you know, it's going to be very difficult. I don't see, you know, any leadership in D.C. uh, out of the Biden administration that seems capable of tackling this. I think Israel is definitely weighing their options. They haven't rushed in. I know in the beginning, in the early stages, they were talking about, you know, launching the ground invasion, you know, within a week, and then they kept postponing it. And people have been trying to read into those postponements. But I think ultimately, they had their plans drafted, but this would be a major undertaking. You know, this this is one of the most densely populated areas in the world, uh, the Gaza Strip, and Hamas is buried in there deep. They have tunnel networks, they have plenty of weapons, plenty of munitions, and it would be some of the most brutal urban fighting. It would make what we saw in Bakhmut uh, in Ukraine seem mild by comparison. And Bakhmut was wholly metropolis that Gaza is. I mean, Gaza is a massive, massive city, uh, and this is a massive metropolitan area. Bakhmut, at the end of the day, was really a small village. Uh, that sort of devolved into urban conflict uh, compared to the Gaza Strip. So I think the Israelis understand that. They understand that, you know, this would go against their doctrine. Their doctrine is get in, get out, minimize casualties on their side because they can't sustain a long-term kind of conflict like that. But Gaza poses a massive threat uh, because Hamas is going to be dig, dig in and they, they're they goading the Israelis. They want this ground invasion. They want that kind of fight, uh, you know, partly because they're driven by religious fanaticism and also because 
they realize that their best strength is on their home turf. So the Israelis are going to try to, you know, navigate that water. I'm confident they'll be able to do it, uh, but we'll have to see how things, you know, unfold. Yeah, and they're trying to pull in every Arab state that they can, uh, regardless of whether it's Sunni, Shia. Shia. I don't think that uh, doesn't indicate that that will work very effectively. The Iranians, uh, all bets are off, you know, and that's another good reason why we have a lot of Navy uh, that has counter-missile batteries capability. They demonstrated that against the Yemen missiles that were fired a couple of days ago. Uh, but, you know, our, our air bases have already been attacked in Iraq and southern Syria. And, uh, a couple of times, and we can expect more of that. Uh, and uh, you're right, I'm very concerned about our leadership having the wherewithal to make the best decisions without continuing this march into this worldwide conflagration that's really potentially uh, capable of happening here. But Israel, I think, I agree with you. You know, I mean, they're going to have, they're going to go in, uh, and it's got to be a long-term thing. They can't pull out anymore and give it back to them until they get things sorted out and get a government in there that's not Hamas. Well, we got to take our next break and we'll be right back here on the Rob Beta Show. Moms and dads of America, you love your kids. You love God. You love this country. And you're tired of watching companies betray your values and ruin great products. Don't get angry. Invest your time, energy, and money into the people that are building the country you want for your kids and standing for the values that will lead to their blessing and protection. Invest in companies like Brave Books. They are on a mission to create content for kids that is safe for them to enjoy. They have kids' books that teach about character, hard work, and the value of being brave. If you join their Book of the Month Club, you get a new book sent to your door every month that will teach your kids pro-God, pro-American values. Brave books will not betray your trust. Your children and your grandchildren will thank you. Remember, the land of the free depends on the homes of the brave. This one's on me, bud. Russian offensive has been swift, callous, and brutal. It's barbaric. Putin's illegal occupation of Kyiv and the impending ground operation in Iran has created a two-front national security crisis that requires more troops than the volunteer military can supply. I have received guidance from General Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, that the recommended way forward will be to invoke the Selective Service Act, as is my authority as President. The first to be called in a sequence determined by national lottery will be men and women whose 20th birthday falls during calendar year 2023. Remember, you're not sending your sons and daughters to war. You're sending them to freedom. God bless our troops and God bless Ukraine. 
welcome back to the Rob Manus Show here on the Red Voice Media Network. And before you freak out, uh, that was an artificial intelligence produced deep fake video by our friend Jack Posobiec over at Human Events from several months ago. Uh, but I want to get Gavin Wax, our guest today's take on the potential for a military draft, considering the context. But first, before we dive into that, uh, I want to say that we are not afraid to talk about the intelligence failures here on this uh, show. I've been talking about it uh, uh, for the entire time. And add in the American intelligence failures, because we have an obligation to our allies to give them indications and warnings. So it wasn't just the vaunted Israeli system, it was the vaunted American system. And it's driven, in my view, by this over-focus on Ukraine and Russia over in Eastern Europe, because we requested, no, demanded our allies turn their intelligence assets in that direction, and that includes Israelis. We put a lot of pressure on them uh, to uh, help uh, in that regard. So, Gavin, nobody here is afraid to talk about that uh, because we don't want what Biden was just talking about to ever freaking happen. And I wanted to get your take on the potential for a draft because Pasovic was prescient, wasn't he? When he put he was. Together, he, he does pull it off uh, quite often, but I have to say that one was especially prescient. Uh, and uh, now here we are. What does your generation think about that? Well, I'll start with the, the first point before I get into the draft. I mean, what we're seeing is, you know, the lack of meritocracy in a lot of these intelligence institutions. You know, one, they're being distracted with Russia, Ukraine, then they're also being distracted, you know, with this with these woke, you know, postmodernist cultural Marxist focuses on white supremacy and whatever else. I mean, that's more on the domestic side with the FBI, but this is all infecting all of our institutions. And, you know, we're not promoting people based on merit anymore. We're promoting them based on DEI and all the rest. And this is having an impact on the capabilities of these intelligence agencies, along with their their misdirected focus on all things Russia, Ukraine above all else. So there's been tons of failures across the board, and uh, it's part of this broader institutional rot that we were talking about earlier. Now, listen, on the on the topic of uh, of a potential future draft, I mean, you know, that was a, uh, um, a fake video, a deep fake, but it, it hits it hits a chord. It strikes a chord because I think a lot of people, you know, they, they're getting the sense that, you know, if we're going to really be focusing on all these different conflicts stretching from a massive land war in Europe to a, a massive regional conflict in the Middle East, you know, uh, to uh, against a country like Iran, which is no Iraq. It's a far bigger, uh, far deadlier animal than Iraq ever was, particularly, you know, the Saddam-run Iraq. It, it's nowhere in terms of uh, that scale. It's of a, of a multitude far greater. You're talking about all these different conflicts. You're talking about, you know, the the with the conflict, the potential conflict in, in Taiwan, uh, in, in the South China Sea. You're talking about potential conflicts uh, on the Korean Peninsula, another area that Trump was able to really calm uh, the, 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 the tempers calm down, the potential flames for future conflict. All of these places across the world uh, are on fire right now. And what we've seen at home is we've seen a U.S. military that has, you know, dishonorably discharged members of the armed forces who refused a vaccine. Uh, we've seen uh, a U.S. military that, again, has elevated people to positions that are only there because they check certain boxes, not because they're qualified in their particular fields. And you've seen a U.S. military and, and, a, and, a, and a defense department that has really spit on these multi-generational army families, Navy families, Air Force families that have been across the United States. Many of them are very conservative. They're very Christian. Uh, they're in the South. They're in the Midwest. I mean, we have really just spit on 
the largest recruitment areas for our armed forces. And then we're scratching our heads wondering, oh, why is why are our numbers down? Why do we have to lower our standards to meet our uh, to meet our figures, to meet our targets? And at the same time, we're having this unprecedented recruitment crisis. Now we're also trying uh, to spread ourselves uh, you know, as thin as we ever have been uh, from a military perspective. So ultimately, I think a lot of people are looking at this and saying, well, you know, their their fallback, their last recourse may be the draft. Now, the draft is an interesting thing because on one hand, obviously I'm opposed to it. Uh, obviously it has massive issues, you know, just in terms of the effectiveness of of those fighting and and the, and what happens also more importantly, socio-politically. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it ultimately makes these conflicts everyone uh, everyone's problem. And all of a sudden, you know, a lot of people that are very passive, they're not really paying attention to what's happening in the world. They're not really paying attention to politics. That that gets flipped on its head the second you're actually drafting them, their son, uh, a member of their family, a loved one, their boyfriend, their husband, whoever it is. Uh, all of a sudden, these conflicts across the world that you and me are talking about uh, are much more closer to home. And uh, that's honestly, in some ways, the benefit of a draft, because the draft is almost like a check on a lot of this foreign interventionism. It's like, you know, you can't get away with this stuff if you're drafting, uh, you know, a huge segment of the population. So there's pros and cons there. Do I think they're ultimately going to do it? I mean, it really depends. I mean, we, we, we're we in unprecedented times. I mean, the world is approaching, again, a World War, a world war style conflict. And uh, is the United States prepared uh, to engage in that to the degree people like Lindsey Graham and others want to? Uh, probably not. They probably may need to resort to a draft. So what started as kind of a joke uh, with with Jack Posobiec's uh, video, maybe it turns into reality. But I think it's really going to be a place of desperation uh, if they were to do that. It'd be a desperate move, and I think it would present them far more problems than being, you know, the the establishment in D.C. It would present them a lot more problems. Uh, than solutions because yeah you you may you may solve a temporary manpower problem but then you're going to replace it with a massive uh, political problem at home I mean it's going to make the Vietnam you know uh, war protests and the draft dodging and 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 the uh, the uh, political instability that we saw during that period of American history seem mild by comparison so uh, a lot of a lot of bad news and a lot of uh, no good answers on any front. Yeah, and uh, multi-generational families like mine that goes all the way back to the American Revolution, uh, are, it's, the recruiting is done by people like me, retired senior officers, retired senior enlisted. We stopped doing it two years ago. We stopped recruiting at all, and that's why the numbers are low, because of the things that you mentioned, man. Uh, well, let's go over to the X-Spaces audience for a real quick question before we go to the break. Cat, uh, I know somebody's got a microphone over there that wants to ask Evan a question. I'm pretty sure Chad had something. Chad, go ahead. Short question, Chad. And there he is. Wait, short? Okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, Gavin, ultimately, how do we beat an ideology? The war that we're seeing over there and its subsequent ideology through the region, ultimately, how do you beat that? Going door to door? Is that the answer? Well, you don't beat an ideology by surrendering our moral high ground and our moral superiority, which we've done for decades and generations. I mean, you know, we, we can't preach to the world about the virtues of our system, the virtues of our constitution when we trample on it every day, you know, and we're locking up political dissidents at home when we're, you know, engaged in censorship, we're engaged in government 
uh, overreach and, and violation of, uh, of our own Bill of Rights and, and our constitutional uh, rights, then, you know, we're never going to be able uh, to beat an ideology abroad that are going to call us hypocrites, that are going to call us an evil empire, that are going to call us all sorts of things. So, you know, part of winning against some of these deep-rooted ideologies, and I do believe this sort of radical Islamist ideology is a, is a massive threat uh, to the Western world, not just the United States, the Western world at large. We're not going to beat that by, uh, you know, surrendering and and our own values and and gutting our own systems and betraying our own principles, which we have been doing. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, you know, you could beat it also by not allowing it in. Uh, some of these things, it's not really a deep, it's not really a deep uh, solution. It's simple. It's just saying stop letting them in into our country. Stop letting them into countries in Western Europe. Uh, deport them, denaturalize them when they've when they've committed crimes, when they have become radicalized. Uh, you know, a lot of these issues could be solved. It's just we we lack the will, we lack the leadership. I also don't think we're going to beat them on their home turf. Uh, you know, Israel is in a different position. It's a much more localized conflict for them. They're going to have to go into Gaza. Uh, but the war on terrorism, you know, we're not going to beat them uh, fighting over there. I mean, we've seen tons of failures left, right, and center. Uh, since the start of you know the war on terrorism, what twenty something years ago, uh, I think the, the 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 type of terrorism that we were fighting back then has only gotten worse. Uh, you know, there's been series of attacks, particularly in Europe. You know, people forget them. I mean, the attacks at the Bataclan in Paris, in Nice. Uh, you know, you had the Brussels airport attack. We just had a shooting in Brussels not that long ago. The the mass rapes in Cologne. I mean, there has been more terrorism, not less, since we started this war on terrorism, and we really haven't done a good job fighting it. Uh, so to answer your question, it really depends. I think Israel is going to need to go door to door, in a sense, uh, to use your own language, uh, to take out Hamas and to destroy it as an organization. Is it going to be? Is that going to work? You know, it it, it we're it's going to we we'll have to see. But you know they've they've had a a long period of time running Gaza uh, and really instilling that ideology into the populace at large, and that's not going to go away overnight just because you build their military leaders, most of whom are in Qatar anyway and not in Gaza. You know they're living large in in Qatar uh, on in some cases off American taxpayer money that goes to the PA, goes to these uh, different Palestinian organizations. Uh, but the problem is it's not easy to solve. I think Israel is going to need to do. Uh, massive damage to them from a military perspective, but more broadly, how do we defeat this ideology? Uh, we need to show that our own ideology has merits, our own ideology, our own worldview. You know, the 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 strengths of Western civilization are worth fighting for, and are you know are the biggest producers of prosperity, technological and scientific advancement, human development, peace, prosperity, all the rest. I mean, that's all Western civilization, but we've surrendered that. We've become ashamed of it. Uh, we've, you know, tore down our own statues, our own history, and uh, because of that, we look weak on the world stage. And these ideologies that compete with us say this Islamist ideology that we're talking about right now—they're ascendant as a result. You're absolutely right. You know, we've 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 cratered our moral authority uh, when it comes to liberal uh, democracy or uh, what America stands for, which is the liberty of the individual, uh, and governments are implemented to protect that. Uh, we've completely cratered our moral authority. Well, we've got to take our last break, Gavin. When we come back, uh, there is a way, and you, you touched on it, to put Iran back in its box uh, very quickly, and we'll talk about that. It's called maximum pressure when we come back to The Rob Mana Show here uh, live on the Red Voice Media Network.
interrupt today's programming to bring unfortunate news. Biden's dangerous plan for a digital dollar is underway. Don't be fooled. It won't benefit you. So take action now. The Federal Reserve's phased deployment of FedNow began on July 1st, 2023. Be prepared. This may catch many off guard and put your hard-earned assets in jeopardy. But here's the good news. There's a simple legal tax loophole to opt out of the digital dollar. Speak to someone at American Alternative Assets for a free wealth protection guide and discover how to safeguard your wealth with gold and silver IRAs against a failing dollar and volatile markets. Dial 833, the number 2 USA Gold. Yes, call now, 833-287-2465. This invaluable guide provides precise steps to transfer your IRA or 401k into precious metals without any tax consequences. Don't let Biden force you into using the government's new digital dollar. Call 833, the number 2 USA Gold. Yes, call now, 833 833- 287-2465. Act swiftly. 833-287-2465. We have to be supportive of Israel. They are our ally. They were attacked, and they must obliterate Hamas. I am fully supportive of that, as are my colleagues on Capitol Hill. But with respect to being pulled into World War III, something none of us want, this is going to take leadership from Joe Biden. Leadership, by the way, he's not um, he's not shown to any point at this time. So it starts also with going back to the Iranian sanctions that were under President Trump and having this White House um, reverse course on some of their desires with Iran, trying to negotiate through the back door. That will be a big step forward to avoiding this global conflict. Welcome back to the Rob Mader Show here on the Red Voice Media Network. And yeah, they want us and our kids to die in their world war uh, that they've gymmed up here. And our guest today is Gavin Wax, the president of the New York Young Republicans, an author in his own right, uh, uh, and uh, and someone who you know from a generation that's that's behind my generation that has actually taken the time to learn this stuff. Now, Gavin, uh, that was Byron Donald's talking there, uh, and uh, I totally agree with him. Yeah, Israel's got their responsibility and right to defend themselves, and we should support that. Uh, But we could put this back in the box very easily, couldn't we? Donald Trump's maximum pressure campaign was working, and and then Biden opened the lid and did the appeasement thing like Obama was trying to do. And that, and really, I believe that's a large part of why we're right where we're at today. What's your thoughts on that? And then, and then give us your thoughts on what you think of future American national security uh, uh, and foreign policy efforts should look like if we can ever get beyond this endless war policy and trying to be the Roman Empire and leading with our military everywhere. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll start with uh, the first point here. I mean, under Trump, I mean, it really comes down to the sort of old world mentality. A lot of these countries, they viewed Trump <laughs> as a strong leader, as someone to be feared, as someone uh, who meant what he said and was willing uh, to, to to fight for it, who was willing to, you know, meet his words with actual uh, kinetic uh, kinetic warfare if necessary, you know, send in the big bombs, uh, do what he needed to do, and they respected him for it. And, you know, he was a leader that was able to achieve peace because of, honestly, how he projected himself 
on the world stage. A lot of it really just comes down to some of these superficial sort of uh, things we're talking about, how he presented himself, how he spoke, how he carried himself. Then you compare that to someone like Biden, bumbling, mumbling, tripping. You know, he's an emperor with no clothes. I mean, people understand that. He's a reflection of the current, uh, you know, the current regime. I'll use that word in, in Washington right now. He's a reflection of that. Uh, it's weakness. It's uh, incompetence. It's corruption. It's not a administration that's capable of fighting a multi-front war. It's not an administration that's capable of uh, de-escalating these rising tensions across the world. It's not an administration that's capable of showing the leadership that's necessary on the world stage to sort of bring things uh, bring things down a few notches. Uh, and they're taking advantage of that. They're taking advantage of the domestic uh, political turbulence in the United States. They're taking advantage of this American-managed decline, which has been going on for 20, 30, 40 years under American elites. They understand that the U.S. dollar isn't what it once was. They understand that the U.S. economy isn't, was it, isn't what it once was. They understand that the country is probably more politically uh, divided, racially divided than any point in its history. They understand that you know we can't even maintain order on major American streets and major American cities from New York to Chicago to San Francisco. They understand that you know we have a judicial system that has been completely weaponized against its own people. They look at the United States like they would many other empires throughout history, and and it's in their it's in a very bad state now. You know, can we recover? Absolutely. Can there be a national renewal? Absolutely. Uh, with the right leadership, anything is possible. Uh, but, you know, because of this, I agree with what the congressman said. You know, no one's respecting us. They're taking advantage of the situation. And a lot of this has been timed uh, to the American political calendar. You know, they're not doing these yes. things uh, when there's a Republican administration, when Donald Trump's in office. They're doing these things, you know, as the political calendar unfolds. I mean, everyone always talks about, you know, the, the certain incursions that Russia engaged in. Uh, whether it was originally in Georgia and then it was in Crimea and then in uh, the Donbass. All of these things happened under uh, these weak administrations. They did not happen under President Donald J. Trump. And, uh, you know, had the Trump administration gone into its second term, uh, they were even on the verge of a peace deal in the Balkans uh, between Serbia, Kosovo, and Albania. People forget about that. And that's another area now that I failed to mention earlier that's also on the verge of opening up another front of this, you know, this yeah. this global conflict. But as far as the future of the American, you know, national security, you know, strategy, I think we need to reevaluate everything wholesale. I think we have too many obligations that really don't do anything for us in terms of uh, a geostrategic or, or or national interest. I think we have a very dated uh, view at the Pentagon, at the State Department. You know, we have this sort of Cold War mentality that's carried forward. Now we have sort of a, a dated neoconservative. A worldview that's also carried forward from the war on terrorism. And we're not prepared to operate again, to bring it back to what I opened with, we're not prepared to operate in a multipolar world order where there's many regional powers, there's many global powers, that they have their spheres of influence, that they have their national interests, and they're willing and able uh, to push back against, you know, U.S. Uh, US you know, dictates. Uh, and we have to understand that, and we have to operate accordingly, and we have to operate with more of a real politic agenda. And we should look at every alliance, we should look at every treaty in the same way that President Trump looked at every trade agreement and every free trade agreement and said, everything needs to be reevaluated, everything needs to be reconsidered, and we need to really just come back to a, a clean slate and understand where is our national security objectives, where is our national interest. Uh, and we also have to return to the basics. You know, we can't talk about protecting the borders. Uh, of Ukraine or or Syria or Iraq or wherever, if our own border is being flooded, you know we can't talk about engaging in this sort of 
foreign interventionism if we can't even balance our own books, if we can't even, you know, produce the weapons that we need to wage these wars. I mean, we've basically gutted our industrial capacity. So, you know, we're talking about Russia, you know, they're pumping out tanks, they're pumping out bombs, they're pumping out munitions. And most of Western Europe, you know, they're resorting to using Soviet era, you know, you know, equipment that's been, you know, collecting dust somewhere in some warehouse because they've ran out of their, you know, their 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 much more high quality, expensive, you know, NATO grade materials. So, you know, we're not in a position to do these things. So if we want to have that empire, if we want to have that sort of foreign interventionism, we need to return to basics. We need to return to the home front. We need to win the battles here at home, the battles on opioids, the battles on the border, the battles against, you know, the the the, the institutional rot, the battles against corruption and all the rest, uh, the battles against the dollar and inflation, whatever it is. I mean, there's many, you know, using military terminology, there's many wars to be won on the home front before we can even talk about all this intervention abroad. But ultimately, if it doesn't serve America's national interest, if it doesn't serve our security interests, we need to be disengaging from it. And honestly, Ukraine was never a treaty. We never had a treaty obligation to Ukraine. They were never a member of NATO. They were never uh, under any sort of, you know, guarantees of protection from the United States. They were always in the Russian sphere. And, you know, we can debate whether or not it's valid for a nation to be in, in, in a certain country's sphere. You know, we have to take, again, a motion out of the equation. It's just real politique. You know, Russia is far more willing to fight for a few sure. oblasts in eastern Ukraine than we are. And the same way, we're much more willing to fight, you know, uh, to keep uh, missiles out of Cuba than the Russians are to keep, you know, missiles out of out of somewhere in, in Latin America. So these yeah, things have to Barack, be— As Barack Obama said, famously, you know, the problem with Ukraine is it's not in our vital national interest, but it is in right. Russia's vital national interest. And well, Gavin, thanks a lot for joining me today, man. We're out of time. Uh, this was uh, one of the best shows that uh, I've ever got the opportunity to participate in. So I appreciate your efforts and uh, your book. Uh, you, people can find a pinned tweet uh, at your Twitter account or your X account. Uh, what's the title of your book real quick before I let you go? Absolutely. The book is called The Emerging Populist Majority. It hits shelves January uh, of 2024, January 23rd, 2024. It talks about the political realignment in the country, the different political trends, the rise of Trump and all the rest. And it talks about the political future over the next few decades. And, uh, you know, you could get a pre-order link is on Amazon. You could check me out at uh, GavinWax.com for all my latest articles. And uh, you can follow me on social at Gavin Wax. Instagram, Twitter, and all the rest. Thank you for having me. I apologize. I'm a little under the weather, so I had a cough, but uh, it was a great show. We appreciate you, brother. We'll get you back on. Uh, well, that's it, folks. We got a future foreign policy and national security strategy to develop and get right for America first, and because that's the only way that we'll achieve peace, and that's through strength and being focused on America first national interest. I'm Rob Manus. I will see you tomorrow on Training Tuesday in Tucker Still Lab. <laughs> <laughs>